be seated. By popular definition, the Puritans were conservative Christians who were desperately afraid that someone, somewhere, might be having a good time. In reality, the Puritans knew very much how to have a good time. But contrary to their detractors, they also knew a good time never results in shame or sorrow or depression. It only results in spiritual joy and thanksgiving to God. The Puritans were not worried that someone might be having a good time. They were sobered by the reality that sin destroys people. They refused to entertain the popular fantasy that we can satisfy our sinful cravings, whatever they may be, without reaping bitter fruit in our lives. And as God's people, we come to see that this is the case because God is our Creator. We've come here, in a sense, in part, to speak to that truth. We believe in a Creator God who has designed us to love Him with all of our heart and to glorify His name in all that we do. We've been singing these songs today and focusing upon God's truth here together today because we believe He is the Creator. That we owe Him our life. That we find in His being our source of strength and joy. But by virtue of our fall in Adam... We have natural desires, we also understand, to disobey our God, to disobey His will for our lives. We're beset by sinful lusts of many kinds, seeking satisfaction in ways that are out of sync with God's design and pleasure for His people. And in part, we're here because we know that as well. And so, coming to hear a word of grace, we gather as those created by God, and we gather as those who have passions that pull us away from Him. And knowing then the destructive powers of sin, we learn to pray earnestly. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from sin. Deliver us from the evil that stalks us everywhere in this world and makes an appeal to our desires that are disordered. And by God's grace, then, we learn to live with the skill of of detecting moral danger and avoiding it, realizing that's the world in which we live, realizing that's who we are and how we are oriented in this life. We learn to live a life of moral skill detecting those dangers, which brings us back to Proverbs chapter 7, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, Proverbs chapter 7. The book of Proverbs preserves, as we know, the instructions of a court sage and or a father's counsel to his son concerning how to live with moral skill. As we come to Proverbs 7, the father continues to arm his son with moral wisdom on how to handle one particular temptation with lust. Lust can cover many temptations. All temptations that we have, desires that we have for what is wrong can be categorized as lust, but here he picks out one particular illustration. But first, the godly father seeks to secure a hearing 
from his son. This is no news to us. We've seen this pattern before. But a general call to heed the Father's counsel starts this new word of instruction. This new section of, of the book of Proverbs. Verse seven, or, or chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. As we noted last week, it is this external counsel of the Father that is life-sustaining and gives hope to the Son. Abundant, joyful, no regrets life does not flow from emotional responses to innate cravings and intuitions. It flows from the external counsel of our Heavenly Father. There is a source of wisdom and truth outside of us. And the Father lays this out again. You must guard my words. Keep my words and live. Keep them, it says, as the apple of your eye. Speaking of the pupil. We're pretty careful with our eyes. The eyelids blink pretty quickly. The whole body gets involved at certain times to protect our eyes. They're very precious to us. And the pupil of the eye, as you protect that, so you should protect this life-giving counsel from outside. That is given to us to give us life. Verse 3, in fact, bind them on your fingers. Bind these words of instruction. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Figures of speech meaning treasure faithful counsel. Remember it. Meditate upon it. Practice it. Such counsel should not be dismissed as outdated, as boring, as meddlesome. Rather, it is an invaluable companion to those who desire to walk the road of life skillfully. And so, verse 4, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Yet again, the Father turns to a specific application now of this truth, of His counsel, and how to heed that counsel in a morally corrupt world. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. Make this counsel close to your heart in order to, verse 5, keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. The father is not worried that his son might have a good time. He is anxious that his son realize there are passions that can ruin him. There are passions that can take him away from God. And there are passions that can destroy his life and the life of others. He must be armed with this knowledge. And so we go from the general call to heed the Father's counsel to again a specific application of heeding that counsel. Keeping the Father's commands will strengthen the Son to avoid the adulteress and resist her smooth words. We see there in verse 5. The woman, he must learn to identify, think of that, he's got to learn to identify her, to pick her out. This woman is called the forbidden woman here, or the adulteress. The Hebrew word for forbidden woman is stranger or foreigner, and adulteress can also be translated foreigner. Again, not foreigner in the place of where this individual lives, but she is estranged from her husband. She's a stranger to him in this sense, and she is estranged to her God. 
and she is outside this young man's legitimate circle of intimacy. It's this woman that wise counsel will help him to avoid. Now, we met this woman before, haven't we? And you think of this as directly a curriculum for a father to a son, as his son, unmarried, is preparing for life. You would expect that this would find its way into the instruction. And so we have met her in chapter 2. We met her again in chapter 5, and yet again last week in chapter 6. This is clearly a lesson that the father repeatedly drives home with his son. He's not the kind of dad who has that one facts of life discussion with his son and then is embarrassed to ever bring that up again. Just lets his son find his way out in the world and run across such a woman and figure it out on his own. It's also the kind of dad who tends to respond very violently when there's a mistake. It's not, he's not that kind of dad. Listen, my son. Let's sit down and talk. There are women out there. You need to know who they are. You need to be able to identify them. And you must realize they are danger. They'll destroy your life. Let's talk about her. There's a real world out there. It is a world filled with moral pitfalls. And the father is insistent that his son get this lesson. Not just math class, not just music lessons, not just athletic lessons. He wants his son to get this lesson. you got to pass this. you got to grab it. A woman is going to come to you, son, with smooth speech. At least it's possible, and you need to be armed for it. That speech will pull you in the opposite direction of my wise counsel. So hear my counsel here. Will the son heed the words of his father or will he be drawn in by the creamy, luscious words that drip from the tongue of the seductress? In verses 6-22 through now, in the instruction, the father depicts for his son a graphic... This lays out a graphic primer on seduction. We see here the anatomy of of seduction, the powerful allure of sexual seduction. The father narrates an encounter between a foolish, morally unprepared young man and a wily seductress. Verse 6, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The tension builds. A few ancient homes had windows on the ground level. Usually those were reserved for rooms on the second floor. And these were just holes in the wall. There wasn't any glass yet, so they would sometimes be covered with lattice to keep birds out and the like. But through that lattice, through that wooden grid, this man stands from this upper room looking down onto the street and he's not detected hiding behind that lattice. 
undetected from his hidden vantage point, he reports in verses 7 through 9 what happens. There's this young man who's lacking sense. He's morally naive, the Hebrew word indicates. Not intellectually stupid as such, but he's clueless morally. He's a young man who is unprepared to handle the moral challenges of life. He's essentially unarmed against the temptations of the flesh. He does not necessarily set out to find an adulterous woman, but he is not ready to resist her either. So clueless about the moral dangers lurking in the shadows of the gathering darkness, he just walks down the street. And moral weakness on his part and temptation on her part are going to collide. And he is not ready. Unprepared, unaware, she is very ready and dressed to kill. Verse 10, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Wily of heart. The Hebrew word crafty, sly, underhanded intent she brings to the scene. He should detect by the way she is dressed that she's dangerous. He should detect by where she is, how she approaches him, that she is dangerous. But he is a moral dullard. He's dim-witted and feather-brained morally. A fool who does not discern anything more than this. She is attractive. He salivates. His heart races. He likes being next to her. She, on her part, verse 11, is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. It's interesting, the godly wife in Proverbs 31 busies herself capturing food and clothing for her family. That Hebrew term is used. It's as if she is a lioness that goes out and captures things for the good of her home. This woman is out on the street seeking to capture a man. She's hunting him down. She has a turbulent soul, restless, boisterous, aggressive, bent on sin. Again, this is unique in some sense to the context of her day, and we're looking at just one scenario. But she is probably a very young woman, married, disappointed in marriage, and out trolling for a young man who's clueless. As the young man then walks the street past her house, verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Oh, she had. We see her tactics with shameless aggression. She latches on to him, uninhibited. She enters his private space before he knows what is happening, and she initiates contact with him. She speaks in verse 14, saying here that she's offered sacrifices that day. There is much debate uh, as to what that means, whether she is presenting herself as a cult prostitute or perhaps presenting herself as a religious woman who has 
meat to eat. The meat would be offered in sacrifice, some of it burned up, some of it given to the priests, and some of it taken home and consumed. Whatever she's saying, she does have meat to eat, it would appear. And on some level, she's saying, I've taken care of my business today. It seems to disarm him in some sense. What she doesn't explain is that it's his meat that she wants to eat. And in the process to suck her soul dry, to suck his soul dry. She continues to lure him in at verse 15. Now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I found you. How dense does a guy need to be to believe that? If it wasn't you, it'd be the next guy walking down the street. But he believes it. She's out there looking for me. She's found me. You're special, she tells him. I find you utterly irresistible. Where have you been all of my life? It's a lie, but his brain becomes putty in her hands. He tell, she tells him exactly what he wants to hear, what he wants to believe. This attractive woman is interested in me. She's found me. Of all the men in the city, she's found me. She presses her appeal, verse 16. I have spread my couch with coverings. Colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfume my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Everything is luxurious. It's attractive. It's pleasing to the senses. All he has to do is agree to be her special guest. To come into her house. To relax and enjoy the fragrant, silky delights of her bedroom. Through visual appeal. Look, think of it here. There's touch. There's smell. There's these flattering words. She softens any resistance and now makes her direct appeal in verse 18. Here's where she's been going all along with the discussion of finding him, with the discussion of the sacrifice, with the, with the coverings and the incense and all of it. It's all headed here. Verse 18, come. Let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. This is where she's headed. This is where her smooth speech is directing him. Everything is perfect. Yield. Just yield. And you'll enter in to all this wonder, she says to him. Well, what if got to think there's got to be some question in the man's mind. Again, knowing the context of the day, she is a married woman. And he's got to have some question there. Not to worry. She covers her bases there, verse 19. For my husband is not at home. Okay, that's pretty obvious to me, he's saying. But he has gone on a long journey. Isn't that good news? He took a bag of money with him, which means what? He's going to be gone a long time. At full moon, he will come home, which was the normal time of travel, giving some illumination at night when travel needed to be done at that time. So everything's covered here. Yes, I have a husband. But don't worry about him. This will never affect him. He will never see this. We can do this without being noticed. We can do this without being caught. It's all fine. 
She seeks to disarm any fear and quiet any rumblings of conscience. We can fill in so many other speeches. It's going to be just fine. Just trust me. We hear, however, in her counsel, the echoes of Satan's word. You will not surely die. You can violate the law of God and get away with it. There are no consequences for sin. If you're not caught, no problems. What the adulteress fails to consider is that God will see them. Isn't it in some sense humorous? That what she doesn't understand is that there's a guy standing in the window watching them. All of that is set aside. My husband won't know. There's already people who know. But even if no one else did, God watches over the scene. He never leaves us or forsakes us in any sense of the word. Watching over, witnessing what we do. Some consequences of sin indeed never do become public. And we thank God for His grace in that for the most part. But there are always consequences. There are always consequences. The Father gives now an analysis of this scene, verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades Him. With her smooth talk, she compels Him. There's more said than what we've read but she's able to get through and draw him in. And notice this next phrase. This is, this, is a, this is great wisdom in how this is just written. All at once, he follows her. It's in a moment of time. All at once, any resistance that is there is left aside and he follows her into the house. He follows her in as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. All right, son, let's think on the scene, says the father. You see how it's all laid out. You see how she captures him and draws him in. But let's stand back and analyze from God's perspective. Let's stand back and let's talk about what I was witnessing as I looked out through my lattice, whether figurative or literal, doesn't matter. Let's think about it. Illicit sex reduces you to animal-like status. This young man is like an ox who walks toward the butcher, clueless that he's about to get his neck slit. He's like a deer caught in a noose and then suddenly pierced by a hunter's arrow. He's like a bird caught in a snare. The one thing common with all of these pictures is all three are clueless to the destruction they're about to suffer. The bird, the ox, the deer, just going about their business, not knowing that they're about to die. That's this guy. He's just going about his business, walking down the street, but as she gets into his space and as she initiates contact, as she tells him everything he wants to hear and presents the scene so beautifully, he doesn't realize he is walking into death. And so his final warning to the son, verse 24, and now, O sons, and here we may indeed have the court 
uh, setting where the counselor comes to the boys who are learning how to live life skillfully. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. That is, do not fall to her deceptive, restless, seductive, sensual, unfaithful, rebellious, reckless, alienating ways. Don't get caught in that trap. She is a stranger to her husband, to her community, and to her God. Do not get involved with such a person. Every beautiful relationship, every right relationship in the life of God's people is rooted in covenant. It's rooted in our covenantal relationship with God and with one another. Now, not pressing that literally in every sense of the ex- external sense of the word, but there's a covenantal relationship that allows communities to thrive. She's not in it. In the way she's living, she's outside of that, and you get outside of that with her. Don't stray into her path. For, verse 26, let's finalize it again. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, to death, going down to the chambers of death. Drooling, he slinks into her abode, not realizing not realizing the reality. Everything is pleasing to the eye, to the nose, to the ear, especially her. As he comes into that abode, her home, what he does not realize is that her home is an open grave with a slide right into hell. It's a death trap. Bruce Waltke's commentary on Proverbs 7, he references William Shakespeare's The Rape of Lucrece, a Roman legend. In a pivotal scene, Lucrece pleads with Tarquin not to violate her. She reasons that such a senseless glutting of his lust will produce only sorrow and misery and irreparable damage to both of them. Don't do this. He is capable in the setting to take advantage of her. She is defenseless except for her words. And she reasons with him and pleads with him to think. But Tarquin extinguishes the revealing light of Lucrece's earnest reasonings for, as Shakespeare puts it memorably, light and lust are deadly enemies. Light and lust are deadly enemies. In Proverbs 7, what God does is to arm us for the future by flooding us with light and flooding lust with light so that we see it for what it is. It steps outside of covenantal relationship. It is entering onto a path of death. There's destruction on this path and God turns the light onto the darkness and chases it away. Our Heavenly Father is no killjoy, anxiously wringing His hands in the fear that someone somewhere might be having a good time. 
No, God graciously and wisely counsels us to realize that lust can extinguish light. And it can plunge us very quickly into a world of darkness. A world that is filled with shame and with sorrow and depression. And so in order to live with moral skill, we must understand that God designed sex to be a spiritual, emotional, and physical union between a man and a woman. And such a union is to be and only can be enjoyed within the confines of a covenantal, lifelong commitment in the bond of marriage. God knows this. He is telling us this. He's conveying this to us. We need to think counterculturally. We need to listen and heed His Word. To live skillfully in this world is to discern the light of God's creative design and permit that knowledge to dissipate the darkness of our lusts. God doesn't pretend there aren't lusts. But He continues to steer and to challenge and to direct them into the right way. Obviously, this counsel is very important for young men. And why I believe in part is repeated through the book of Proverbs. There's a lot about women in the book of Proverbs. It fits the context. But what is said here is equally applicable to young women, of course. Young women, there is a kind of young man who says certain things, who handles himself a certain way, who can quickly win your heart, snag your body, and crush your soul. They're there. And we as parents need to help our young women see who those kind of guys are. To sniff it out. And to avoid it. We need to be warned and to live wisely. And this counsel, of course, is equally applicable to older men and to older women as well. We could just turn it slightly and apply it to all of us on some level. We live in a sexually promiscuous culture where opportunities to ruin your life abound. Virtually every one of us could find an illicit relationship on the internet if we set our minds to it. Some of you say, I couldn't. I don't touch the internet. I don't even know what it is. I'm not sure if I know how to spell it. But you know you could get in it. Very quickly, very easily, every single one of us here. In fact, we might stumble across such opportunities without ever intending to do so. I've received a marriage proposal from India, complete with picture, phone number, and the whole thing. I mean, it, 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 it was laughable, but it could also turn very serious. All at once, he follows her. Indeed, for this culture, the internet has become a source of moral darkness unlike mankind has ever witnessed on the face of the earth. And parents, I think it calls upon us to teach, to have frank, honest discussion that teaches discernment and i know as a parent and many of us that are it's just almost overwhelming but we've got to talk we've got to think we've got to teach and indeed i may find some here my voice may reach you 
and you're stuck. You're caught. This is another warning from God to seek counsel, to seek accountability, to approach others and say, my life and relationship with God is important enough that I will seek out the help, accountability from others within the body of Christ. Approaching someone with that desire, if they're godly people, they'll not think less of you, they'll think more of you. They'll be thankful that here's somebody serious about dealing with lust and dealing with the difficulties of sexual temptation that are so prevalent in this world. There's a word here for our married couples to remain faithful to our covenant and to seek pleasure in one another. To pursue that knowing that we have the pleasures of God. For those who are single adults among us to determine again in our mind that sex is for marriage and that enjoying it prior to marriage is a path to destruction. If God should not grant us that privilege of marriage in this life, God knows what He's doing and I can find in Him my joy and my strength and like a hundred other areas of temptation, I can give this to Him. But taking what He's not giving you is doing nothing for the future, but harming it. It's a call to us again to assess, to think, and to be faithful to the Lord. At the end of the day, sexual sin is like every other sin. A temptation to yield to our lusts in disregard of God's will and in sacrifice of His goodness in our lives. That's what sin is. And I think then there's a very vital word and message from God here, not just on this one topic, but on how our Christian life is lived out. There's a vital word here for us in that life is resistance to the flesh, in part. We have to be, in in the right sense of the word, at peace with that. We are always going to be in a place where we are resisting the flesh. There are desires that pull us away from what God desires for us from His goodness to us. And you know what the struggles are in your life. But what He says about sexual faithfulness, He also says as He commands us away from lying and stealing and bitterness and self-centeredness and pride and greed and indeed sexual lust. But in all of us, these cravings, just this concept in your mind is liberating. There's going to be things I want that I, to which I must say no. That's not a thought that's going through the mind of unbelievers today. They don't have that category. They may have the category, I don't want to get caught, I know that if I do this, there will be some negative ramifications and I don't really want to deal with them. But the concept that there's something wrong in me that is satisfied by something outside of me, namely Christ, is not a concept for the unbelieving mind. This external word of counsel, this internal empowerment by the Spirit of God, these are not categories. And so dealing with lust is not a category on these terms. We have come to this place today in the name of Christ as lawbreakers. 
We don't laugh about it. We don't celebrate it. But we're at peace with it. It's who we are. When it comes to the sins I've just mentioned, to lying and stealing and bitterness and self-centeredness and pride and greed and sexual lust, guilty. But isn't this the joy that brings you to gather with God's people each week? That in all of my sin and weakness and failure before God, there is a Savior. There is a Savior who comes in our weakness and takes our sin upon Himself. In His perfection, dies in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. This is the gospel message. In His resurrection power, now we walk in newness of life. We come to realize in increasing ways that there are things that I want that are destructive. There are things that I want that lead me away from God and do not lead to joy. They lead only to sorrow and misery and shame, disappointment and destruction. Now, the, the, the idea is not simply to avoid pain. But the idea is that God is the giver of every good gift. Everything good in our lives comes from Him. Everything. And there's no shame in it. There's no sorrow in it. So as I align myself, which is so much of what the book of Proverbs is seeking to do, as I align myself with the character of God, I find joy. I find skill in living. I find that life works. People don't work, and indeed I don't work so often. But as I follow what God has laid out in His Word and through the transforming power of salvation in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, I find strength. And I learn to say no to ungodliness. And dependent upon Him and His power alone, I walk in the righteousness that leads to joy and gladness and faithfulness. There's no categories for this outside of Christ. We couldn't have stopped five minutes earlier and said, now, be warned, be good people. But there is for us the great hope that all of this is rooted in who Jesus is and what He's done. And so we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is the negative side of saying, Lord, show us Your glories and teach us to walk in faithfulness, that we may know to the depth of our being that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, merciful God, for your word of instruction. We don't deserve it, we deserve nothing but to be judged and left on our own. But in Your grace, You have come to those who've trusted Christ as Savior. You've found us in our sin and You've given us the hope that is from above, outside of us. And I thank You for those that have embraced this faith in Jesus. 
Maybe someone here who is separated from Him. All they can ever see is the church saying, don't have fun, don't do this, don't do that. But they've never come to understand that those directives are rooted in a relationship with you that brings nothing but joy and gladness and goodness into our lives. I pray that you'd open such eyes to see the wonder of sins forgiven and of walking in obedience to you, empowered by your Spirit. Please open eyes to that end. And for those of us who know you as parents, as mates, as young men and women, as older men and women, we need your help. Thank you that this word has been sounded in a world that is so bent against this idea, the concept of this chapter. But I thank you that it's been sounded, and I pray that we as your people would follow through in obedience and faithfulness, and that you will continue to pour out your blessing upon this church. There are young adults here that are remaining morally faithful and pure. We give you praise. There are young people still living in the home who have committed themselves to wait until marriage. They've committed themselves to not marry unless you would lead them to a mate who loves you and is faithful to you. We thank you, God, for the couples in our church, the married couples who are remaining faithful to one another, for the marriages that are thriving for the joys that are everywhere evidence. Thank you for this grace. And we thank you for those who are widows and widowers among us and uh, those who could find themselves in a new season of temptation. We thank you, God, for the faithfulness that is evidenced. And I pray that you'll continue to produce it in us as we rest upon your strengthening power through the indwelling Spirit. It is in the name of Jesus that we lay these requests at your feet and that we praise you for your goodness to us in Him. Amen.